friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 40. That's a milestone, 40 episodes. I've talked to a lot of really cool people. I've gotten to travel and meet all sorts of interesting people. So I'm happy that we've reached episode 40. We're still going strong. If you like the show, please leave a review anywhere you listen. Tell a friend. That would be tight. I spent the weekend up in the Lehigh Valley, which is in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. I had a school workshop in Philadelphia, and I had some time. So I came up here. It's a beautiful place. I got to do some hiking and exploring. I uh, stayed in this town called Jim Thorpe, which is named after this Native American Olympic athlete. And they have a monument to him here, and he's buried here, but the town is named after him, even though he's not from here. It's kind of interesting. So I had a really great weekend, and uh, I read a book called Trout Fishing in America by Richard Brodigan. I love this book. I'd heard about it for a very long time. Brodigan was considered one of the last of the beats. He kind of like was came at the end of that era, and it's a book about just different images and stories about San Francisco and California and trout fishing in America becomes like a metaphor for all sorts of different things. And it's, you know, it's really weird book. It kind of reminded me of Infinite Jest of how it plays with context and tone and character, but I loved it and I can't recommend it enough. And I'm going to do a song about that book for sure. And he has another book I'm starting called A Confederate General and Big Sur which I've heard is great also. So Richard Brodigan, one of my new favorites. I got shows coming up. This Saturday in Boston, I'm playing the Brighton Music Hall with Big D and the Kids Table and my original bandmates from the Robot Kills touring era, one of whom I'm interviewing on the podcast this week, Rob Piccinini Jr. I also want to talk to Mike Russo and John Thatcher Longley, both of whom have songs written about them. Rob, I never wrote a song about, but it's not too late. Then, a week from that, June 15th, I play a show in Philadelphia at Underground Arts with MC Frontalot and Word Burglar. Don't miss that. And then I play the Vans Warp Tour on June 29th in Atlantic City with, I don't know, just a few small bands like Blink-182, Thrice, Glassjaw. Be sure to check that out. And then July 6th, I play Anime Midwest in Rosemont, Illinois, which is kind of outside of Chicago. So those are the shows I have coming up. Let me tell you about why I love Rob. Rob, I met through my first drummer, this guy, John Schiffman, who had auditioned through Craigslist when I was putting a band together to go promote The Graduate in the UK, which was, you know, where I kind of got my start. And Rob was, he kind of was a pinch hitter. There was a Rob Piccinini, Rob pinch hitter. I don't know. His last name is Piccinini, Piccinini Jr. actually. I hired a guy who ended up backing out because he didn't think he could handle touring. He couldn't, he freaked out and couldn't come to practice, even though I'd bought him his plane ticket to England and hired him. It was kind of messed up, but bad things often lead to good things because John Schiffman knew this bassist, Rob Piccinini Jr. He and I became, you know, inseparable on tour. We drove each other crazy. We have a similar sense of humor. He's a really great musician. And uh, yeah, so we talk about those years touring, the transition I made from touring with a band exclusively to pretty much touring just with my laptop exclusively as I'd started out, which was kind of a financial thing I had to do. But in special occasions like Warp Tour coming up and the show with Big D and the Kids Table, I get the guys back together. And the last time we were all together was my wedding last year. So this is my interview with Rob Piccinini Jr. He has a band called Red Hymns, and we're going to end the podcast with this song called Three Years, I Promise. I wanted to plug some of Rob's upcoming events. On June 7th, there's a listening party for his Volume 3 EP. It's at Barrier Brewing in New Jersey. And then on the 14th, Volume 3 comes out, available everywhere. And then 
on the 21st, they play the FM bar in Jersey City. It's the album release show. So be sure to check that out. Anyone in the tri-state area, let's show Rob some love. They're awesome. I've seen this band a few times, and they're fantastic. So this is my interview with Rob Piccinini Jr. I'm here with Rob Piccinini Jr. Yo. One of my favorite people. Did you hear that slap? That was a high five. That's a friendship slap. When did I last see you? Uh, at your wedding. So a few when months ago. Yeah. It was August 25th. That's right. Thank you for not having it outdoors. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. I had some outdoor summer weddings that were terrible. Isn't it funny? You get to the point where all your friends get married in like a very short amount of time. It's weird. It just happens. I appreciate that you and Amanda came all the way up, man. That was so fun. How could I miss it? It was cool. And it was the first time you, me, Mike, and John were all had all been together in like one room in years. For right? like yeah, like ten years. Maybe just about just it was such a blast from the past. It was such a fun night. How did the first version of the band <laughs> come together and like man, it's so we're diving right into it, but you have you've you've been in so many bands and I was lucky enough to have like a long stretch where we just played probably hundred shows together. Yeah, pro- I'd say probably five years, right? Yeah. Of consistent playing. <laughs> it would just Consistent. be random too and then it would be like nothing for a few months and then it'd just be like i'd get that phone call like hey rob you want to go play some shows He's like yeah sure and we not? opened for some great like what were some of the bigger people we nas yeah no, no. Where we got we got a boot off the stage <laughs> let's talk about that show right now that was crazy so mike russo who played guitar it was mike on guitar you on bass john on drums right but, but we were a little bit rusty in that we it was a lot going on. Well, we, yeah, we never really got to even rehearse for the most part. We so. just show up and play. Yeah, and I would not. Yeah, because we all lived in. I was still in California, I guess. Yeah. Regardless, it was it was one of those things. It was just like there was barely. Maybe we would get like one rehearsal before we would leave for like two weeks. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're fine. And then you with your just like your jovial, <laughs> like, no care attitude, like don't care over it. What we would do originally is we'd have the instrumental versions of the song and we just play the whole band <laughs> along to it. Whereas like what yeah. I learned now is professional. People with tracks usually just have like a uh, synth playing. Right. Or what? something to color in what the live band is doing. But I never wanted to like pay the producers to distill stuff. So it was always, that was the whole post-punk laptop rap thing was like just wall of sound. And it was hey, a mess. Whatever. The people in UK didn't care. They didn't seem to mind when we were over there. So how did I meet you? One of my closer friends growing up, his wife, who I also went to high school with, her stepbrother was John Schiffman. And I remember... He was playing music and they said, oh, have you heard of this guy, MC Lars? I said, yeah, I actually, I, I've seen him because I had I had known of MC Chris. So then obviously you were popping up on like certain yeah. MySpace things, feeds, because it was similar. And he, so I was just, they were like, yeah, he's going to England with this guy, MC Lars, for like a month. And I'm like, oh, damn it. Like exactly what I wanted to be doing. I was so jealous. And he was playing in a band called Steel Train. Right. On and off. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. But basically. This was January of 06. Yeah, it's so crazy. And yeah. you had, uh, so basically you had some bass player guy who was playing with you that was going to go with you and then like bailed at the last minute, like a month before the tour because he was right. going to do like oil changes on the buses at the Warp Tour or something like that. Yeah, this, I forget his name, but he auditioned. He was into hardcore and punk and he could sing. And I was like, I want a bass player who can sing, who likes both genres, who's fun. And he was great. And he rehearsed. So I bought his ticket to England and we were going to 
rehearse and he calls me, I can't get out of bed. I'm freaking out. I can't do it. I'm like, just get out of bed. He's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. He had mental problems. Yeah, I'd say so. I hope he's okay. But we were hoping to get on Warped that year. And he's like, well, if I'll do Warped because I'm also going to be working changing oil on the buses. And my manager, Tom, at the time was like, if you do do Warped tour, you can't have someone who's like a mechanic if you have a stage time. Right. So I was freaking out. It was last minute. And, and it was literally a month before. Yeah. And we'd been rehearsing a lot. And so. I think John recommended me because you're in a pinch. Yeah. He's like, I think I have this guy who'd be good for it. Because had you played with John in bands or you just... No, I never had, but we just... uh, I just always knew he was a drummer and I was a bass player. And since we were always hanging out together at his brother-in-law's house, my friend's house, we just, you know, he just... He knew I was a musician. He knew my band. So we would get into band talk at the parties and stuff like that, you know, so he knew. Your band Clark Street. Oh, yeah, from back in the day. (laughs) We called him Shiffles. John (laughs) Schiffman. Shiffles, Shiffles, yeah. John Schiffman eventually joined Bleachers because... Jack from Steel Train went and did started fun right with Nate and Andrew from Anathalo. Uh-huh. And so right. they were all like under managed by the same guy, Tom Gates. Yeah, right. And then so it was just this crazy small world scenario. John and then recommending you. And then I remember I called your house and I couldn't pronounce your last name. <laughs> yeah, and, we can. Sh- and your dad was like messing with me because I'm sure you, you get telemarketers who were like, said your name wrong. Horrible. For like a minute and a half, he was like talking to me like, you got the wrong number. Like, who is this? Where'd you get this? I'm like, okay, well, I'm just trying to call Rob about the UK tour because I wanted to hire him for that. And he's like, oh, let me get him. The and whole I was, time. Yeah. Because I was like, well, if this guy, your dad almost prevented you from getting Isn't that Isn't that show. crazy? Right. It's but, so funny. But I'm glad I said that. He didn't just hang up on me. And that's so funny because I feel like in my life. Because you have your dad's name. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a junior. Like, it doesn't cause any problems with the mail or anything like that either. Um, but at that point in my life, I feel like my parents were getting to the point where you know they were like, "You better quit it with that band, that music stuff." Like you know, it's never going to get you anywhere. And I feel like those tours that we did together were the first time that they were like, "Oh, okay, like maybe he couldn't do this." You know what I mean? Like so they kind of backed off a little bit. Really? But, yeah. It's after like a while. the fact that you were touring internationally and. Yeah, right. And, you yeah, know, getting paid. Yeah, right. To go <laughs> to another country or two other countries, whatever it was. Uh, That's pretty dope. Actually, three other countries. Right? So I'd done the laptop thing for so long. And like the third member was this guy, Chris Ayer, who I went to college with, who was living in New York and not doing much. So he was down to do it. He's a singer songwriter. And after that, it was my level of professional musicians. You guys always held it to a high standard. Well, thank you. But yeah, I just I had to. I was freaking <laughs> out. You know what I mean? It was, it, first of all, it was like we were there. For lack of a better term, it was like a higher gun for you. So we wanted to reflect well yeah. on you. And then I remember distinctly, I think it was the first the first London show we had done was the show where like all your your crew, like your team was coming out, like your publicist, your manager, yeah. like all these crazy things. And you were like super nervous, somebody who never cared about anything. And that got me super nervous. Yeah. And then that was the show where Chris broke a string, like the first note of the first song. And we had to like stall for him to change the string really quick did we stall yeah we I were like jamming you, yeah or you, you were just starting to you know riff the way you always do yeah getting up on a, on a ladder was that at 93 feet east yes and i remember that was like 400 people came to see us yeah and it turned out to be like an amazing show even though we were all kind of nervous but it was fun like yeah uh, and, and it's just stuff like that you know it's it was and and you were you were just at the height of your like silliness man to be honest with you. i'll never forget the time where you just found that ladder <laughs> You're like, I'm going to do the whole song for this rickety step ladder. Yeah, uh, the DVD, we put out, Network put out a DVD called This DVD is Not Punk Rock, and it's like an hour of our tour stuff. Yeah. I want to like, I'm going to put some of that on YouTube. I mean, the whole thing is, but there's so much on there 
that it was special because it was a time when it was interesting that rap was still kind of a new thing. Yeah. And over there, it was like the fact that we were doing it with live and it was not major label. It was still kind of underground. Well, and it was your first real like headlining tour over there. It was. And it kind of like, so anybody that had known you knew you with just your laptop opening for what? Simple Plan and Bowling for Soup. Then you came yeah. out to do a headline tour. And not only was the tour great, but it was like an average of 300, 350 kids a night. It was crazy. Yeah. And they were going nuts. And then yeah. it was just, it was like, wow, this is great. It's like, and it just came to the point where it, where you're, it was just, we were just having fun, man. Like, how could yeah. you not? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm nostalgic about that time because it was like, we didn't, you know, the album came out and then we did three tours that year. We were there a lot. You were there three months out of that year. Yeah. And we played a festival, truck festival. And then Steve, who was the guy who played Blake and Hearts of Hate, came and did that tour with us. And right. We did that other festival too, the the surfing festival on the beach. That was pretty cool. With Frank Turner's band. Yes. Million Dead or something? something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. I all that stuff starts to blur together. I remembered yeah. a lot of it, and then it kind of just like after the years go by, it just blurs. But it was, and we opened for the Aquabats, didn't we? On some of those shows, yeah, Aquabats and Alistair. I think yeah. that was like three or four shows out there. Rest in peace, Alistair. We had our first <laughs> tour manager was this guy Martin, who was this German guy. Would always be like, Larcy, I want cake. Why don't you bring me cake? The other bands bring me cake. I'm like, Martin, we could put on the rider. You want cake? He'd always complain about it, but he'd never remind me to ask the promoters for cake. And I just felt it was the well, you mean the rider that was like a loaf of whole wheat bread, a jar of peanut butter, uh, a package of socks, tube socks, <laughs> Diet Coke, Diet Coke, a six never, pack of Diet Coke. And I always wanted peanut butter M and M's, but they didn't have them there, so it was just peanut M and M's. Yeah, or regular M and M's, whatever. And that was the whole thing. And I'm like, I started to realize day in and day out. And I wasn't drinking much, so I didn't ever want alcohol in the rider. Yeah, so I would have to fight you every night to try to get some <laughs> alcohol. I wanted this money. I didn't want beer. Yeah, well, of course. But, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I would be like, okay, yeah, fine. We won't ask. And then they would either ask us or somebody, like, have like Ian yeah. or, Mark or Martin ask. But the funny thing is, I started to realize after a while, I'm like, every night we show up, it's the same stuff. Like, why isn't there jelly? And why is there just peanut butter? So I'm like... Why is the writer like this? I ask you on the side one day, you're like, yeah, for CPs. You're like, you literally were doing it as a joke to see if they would get like the package of underwear and the package of socks. Wait, wait, CPs meaning comedy purposes. Comedy purposes. That Where was did a big, that come from? That was a big acronym for us. Oh, well, that actually came from my friend Craig, who was the drummer in my first band, Amphoteric. And um, he used this way to explain, like, if you do something horrible to a friend, you could say, oh, it's okay. It's for CPs. <laughs> so that became a year in my thing. Another joke was, what, AC Darnielle? Yeah, I that called was, you that. You were yeah. We had these moments. We would have we had the greatest we almost time. Killed each other. Yeah, <laughs> but we would have these moments where we just we get drove on each other's everyone nerves. Everyone crazy. Yeah, us us doing our thing definitely drove everybody else nuts. But it was one of these things. You'd have these moments where you just want to you're at each other's throats because you're in <laughs> locked in a van together for like a month where there's literally like you're no longer you're no further than ten feet away from me at all times for a freaking month and. It just we were both big personalities. Yeah, true. I think that's the AC Darnielle is just like I don't know why it got under my skin, but you were like, I'm gonna I'm gonna announce you as AC Darnielle. And I'm like, for some reason that bothered me. Like, no, you gotta announce me as who I am. What the fuck? Nobody's gonna know who that is. On stage? Yeah, and but you just kept saying it. And it was like during sound check and load in, and you just kept saying it, AC, AC. You stopped calling me Rob for the day. And then I was just getting so angry. And actually on that DVD, when you're like, that's what we call touring. And I kick your, you kick you in the butt. Yeah. That's like, that was the end of that. In Yeovil. In Yeovil, the ski lodge. And that ended up being one of like the best shows of the tour. Oh were, yeah. Cause there was so much anger. Yeah. And then also, well, <laughs> and, and also it was like this steamy, hot little 
ski lodge where the kids were just really responsive. They were going nuts. That's awesome. And and that, you know, that place burned down, Ugh. speculatedly, maybe through insurance fraud oh, or something. Yeah, it's not good. Well, we don't know, but it, one day it was burned down. But Marianne Harris, who was there, did the Hans Molman video. The, remember the woman who was to always yeah. take pictures? Yeah, yeah. Shout out to her. Shout It's It's crazy, man, because... Well, we also covered what? We covered Loser by Beck, right? And Bloodhound Gang. Yeah, and though they were like on a whim too. It's another another uh, Andrew specialty. <laughs> Let me stress everybody out by telling them like two hours before the show, hey, let's cover Bloodhound, uh, Bloodhound Gang, Bad Touch. And everybody looked at each other like, uh, okay. Well, it's four chords. Well, I know, yeah, right. But still, you when you were like preparing for a tour for a month yeah. in crunch time, it's like you barely have the set together. And then I was like, let's learn a new song. I, may, I push you guys hard. Yeah, but hey, whatever. It's, it's If you can't figure it out, then you shouldn't be professionally touring or even semi-professionally touring whatever you want to say you shouldn't be doing it if you can't adapt so yeah but you know what everybody said all right fine so after soundcheck we went upstairs i think it was like um i think what was it called like 93 feet east or something like that or was it in london yeah or the peel i oh, think that was Kingston. The, the first the i first... think it was the first show we did the blood okay. was the peel because i remember it being like so there was like an apartment upstairs that was the green room quote unquote so we, I remember, As is common in England. Well, right. And I think yeah. we, and we were going, so we went upstairs with our, you know, guitars unplugged and John had a little drum pad and you put it on the laptop and we were like, all right, listen, what's the bass do? Okay. That's what it does. All right, cool. And it just came together and it was just like, let's just loop it. We did our own version of it, but. Yeah. And we, I, I used the chorus of the actual track underneath. Yeah. Which was great. Made it easier, but they, mm. Hey, everybody ate it up. They loved it. That was cool. And that was fun to like with the band being able to be like, if you're going to, you could do karaoke with your laptop of the track or or to have the actual band like what's better definitely right. doing a live thing well i would think so yeah and that was a fun thing is that like the tracks were, would sample this punk stuff and then we'd be actually playing it along so it gave it this i don't know i owe those tours to like the fact that i've been able to go back and i feel like that was an apex of 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 attended of people coming to see us but it was still i think if we sucked those tours i wouldn't still be going there yeah you're probably right amazing i know and that was i owe that to also the support that being able to have open for like simple plan and stuff with just the laptop right before right and that there was a huge press campaign behind it it was a it was a very interesting time it made our friendship deep it's crazy to have shared something like that and we yeah. and like we didn't just go once we went three times in the same in year, year within like two months of each other and each time was like at least a month i remember the one time we took time off and stayed a few extra days that was cool did a little the tourism stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, it was crazy. We got caught in the rain, a torrential downpour in London. Yeah, and that I had was fun. I had these Converse All Stars that were, they they were so shot that they were like <laughs> the sole was splitting from the shoe, and it was like the only <laughs> shoes I had, and they got soaked in the rain. Well, I think our fashion, especially mine, oh, you from the East Coast, you probably had a little more fashion, but I just dressed so badly, even on stage. I didn't even think about it, but looking at those <sighs> videos, like so I remember once having. My socks, my Birkenstocks, my son, my like Oakleys, my A's cap, and a giant pea coat and shorts. Yeah, and that was like shorts. what I'd wear. Yeah, right. All it's the- kind of off-putting. <laughs> it was just so, yeah, it was so eccentric though. It was like, it's just- <laughs> it's like grunge, but like it was worse like, than Yeah, grunge. like the pea coat, trench coat, like <laughs> the shorts, the A's cap. <laughs> It was just, and then not only that, that was at a time where your hair was just like crazy. Yeah, and I was like pretty kind of get, getting overweight, and I had really I I wear really baggy pants way past now. It's kind of in to wear baggy. I don't know, but in two thousand six, that was not the style. And I remember a friend of your singer in your other band told me that my pants were too big, and I remember I was so offended. But like, 
I would wear giant crisscross pants because it's in fourth grade that was like popular. It was like the ne- it was like the first step in the de-evolution of Jenkos. Right. Like, it's like the first like, all right, we're going to get a little smaller here. But no, and they weren't that bad. It's just. You, yeah, but you just didn't care. I didn't care. It was IDGAF, like totally. Like that was like your whole like mantra. You just didn't care. No. And that kind of made you, that thing was part of your charm. Like, honestly, you just like. You were just floating through, man. It didn't really matter. I was just glad to be. Just yeah, do, it was doing you. You were do do you. That was like you epitomized do you. The year of remember the white rapper show came out right after that. That was one of the characters. Oh, right. Do you? And then I remember like Hollywood Undead and all like the other MySpace mm-hmm. pop punk hip hip hop stuff was starting to come out. And then MySpace collapsed, and it was like just so crazy. A transitional time of doing a lot of stuff with the nerdcore guys and less with the band and. You know, I miss playing with the with the with the band, but like financially, it would have been hard to sustain it. You know, yeah, well, I mean? yeah, you you probably wouldn't still be doing it, or no. you wouldn't have had as good of a trajectory. I would imagine it would have been a little more steady. It became the band became me and John often just playing like those right. last two warp tours. So John Longley, how did you link me with him? We had when well when John Schiffman ended up, I think going a little more full-time with Steel Train. Because remember at that time, he had played with them a lot as like an auxiliary guy or a fill-in guy, but he was never a permanent member. Then they finally went through like another drummer. They asked him to become permanent and he was going to start hitting the road with them because they were out. And we were playing these random college shows. Right, but it wasn't always like we're going on tour every month. We're coming home for a couple weeks and going back out. It would be like maybe three or four months before I heard back from you to say we have another group of shows. So he wasn't going to be available. So we needed another drummer. And John was the drummer of my old band. So Clark street. Yeah. And hello Lusitania. That was the jam. That's right. Yeah. And he was, uh, and he was like a younger guy that I knew had less to lose, I guess. He 20. He might've been 20 or 21. I don't know. And he had a van. That yeah, was the thing. Right. So we played the show, the college opening for Jack's Mannequin. Uh-huh. And he, it was just you and me and he drove us. Yeah. Those were the craziest shows when it was just you and me because that was a nightmare. Why? Well, because well because it's like we couldn't play the songs that required guitar and then you would want to play them anyway. So we, you know, we would do it. Like I remember. Oh. Well, Bamboozle was like the, the most painful one. Because wait, we were was, trying ba- to, was Bamboozle with Schiffman? Yes, I think so. But Chris Ayer slept in. Well, yeah, he was sick mm. and he passed. Well, God bless him. But yeah. I was so mad he missed the show. I We all were. It was such a surprise because he was a really reliable guy. And then all of a sudden he was just like MIA. Yeah. And it turns out, I guess he was pretty sick and he passed out and didn't wake up. And that was pretty much the end of <laughs> When did of you Chris last see him? Oh, probably the last time we saw him, whenever that was. We went Maybe. to go see a show. I might, yeah, right. But a little bit after all that, but. He still lives in New York and like sometimes we, t- we tweet each other, but that guy's talented, but I always felt like having be a solo artist that it was, I don't know. Well, that was the hard part he too. He was we, punching the clock. It wasn't what he really wanted to do. Well, right. Well, all of us had our own aspirations yeah. to continue to play. It's not yeah. like we started from the ground up or uh we're just like session guys. A, a session guy right which that's what i'm expecting it's like for me i you know i i even speaking for myself i desired to be a little bit more um but i wasn't going to turn down an opportunity to continue to play in front of three to six thousand people at colleges <laughs> opening for these like national acts yeah. plain white tees all crazy <laughs> oh bands. gosh well um so john played drums with clark street for yes. a minute and yeah, then for a while just quit right yeah well it, it kind of was falling apart and you know at that point he finally like he's actually he was the original drummer of my former band 
after Clark Street uh, bounced between, he started. We started oh, that. Yeah. yeah, we kind of came in on the ground floor together. It was like the the tail end of Clark Street, kind of the the beginning of a bounce between. Uh-huh. Um, it just started to get really crazy and like it wasn't really working out anymore. And then um, we just it just he just quit. He was like, I'm going to do this other band. Instead. I remember I was with him in the van. I had stayed with him when I was working on Robot Kills, which was like a two year odyssey of. That's a whole other story. Yeah, I remember uh, that. I'm trying to like keep my head above water as as the recession was hitting and my management company graduate didn't recoup so they were like my manager was didn't want to still work with me but didn't really want me to know that it's so kind of like awkward. one day he just yeah we're doing that session and he was like you know i can't work with you anymore i was like man i wish i'd known two years ago anyway <laughs> but he did open doors and i like have no ill will but it was like i would stay with john at his he had a house 35 Laurel Drive. That's right. Which we would play GameCube and I'd work on demos and we were just out of control. It was just a, it was a pigsty. It was crazy. Yeah. And it's like, I don't mean to like, yeah, like you don't want to say that like in a negative way, in a negative way, but it's like, it was, it was, it was exactly what you would expect from like a 21 year old kid <laughs> having a house. Well, it was a fixer up for his parents' spies and investment that they hoped he would like put time into remodeling. But then it just became a punk rock crash pad for rappers between records. Yeah. Bass players who were between bands. Yep. And, I remember once I was with John and, and I would I was coming to practice for a balance between and there was traffic and we'd left way too late and get on the freeway and he just goes ah never mind and turning around turns around and, and meanwhile <laughs> like our I wasn't I didn't have a car at the time so our singer was picking me up from work we're already I'm already in the car on the way back to his house to practice and our guitar player is in the basement like in the middle of changing his strings mind you right and the funny the funny thing that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back with John and a balance between because. It just was like one of these things where like, oh, come on, like, you, you know, at the time, I don't think he even had a day job. So it's like you couldn't have woken up at like, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock and, and driven down here a little early to skip yeah, the, the massive th- rush. hour. Those were very nocturnal years. They were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Because like, that's the thing. We'd be on tour and, oh. and well, we would get into these tours that were routed for buses, but we were doing it in a van with no trailer. Shit was piled, piled everywhere inside the van. Like literally. You're, talk- you're talking about the MC Lars stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and all that. And then basically, like, we, we would go, like, let's say we were in, you know, Maryland tonight. And, to, and like, two days from now, we're playing in Philly. We would drive from Maryland to Jersey. We'd crash with John. And then we'd wake up the next day and then and go John, to, and as that's a line, every time tour rolls by, you know, we'll stay at Laurel Drive. That's right. I remember I was at his house when I thought about that. And I was, for publishing or something, I wanted to know his middle name. And he texted me Thatcher. And the joke that, like, he had this very posh east coast name but he's messy at messy house it's so great and so john yeah so we were john would just drive us everywhere because we hung out and i had an official audition i remember in manhattan and i think you were there playing the songs to see how we'd vibe maybe you weren't i don't remember yeah and, and it was like three guys and john like really had prepared and i remember something i love about john that i still do is he just hits hard like crazy. And right? he's fin- over the past 10, 13 years, he's become so good. He's the best drummer I've ever played. Well, with. that's the thing. Like I, and I noticed it as well, just from afar, you know, I'm not playing with John anymore, but seeing him progress like on videos and things like that, that get posted on Facebook and stuff. Like to me, that was like, yeah, that's where he kind of finally put it all together. He had that hard hitting solid in the pocket style. And then he got like, yeah, not more finesse, but just more like, yeah, just a little more skilled. It seemed like, yeah, and and also like sometimes the click track wouldn't be clear, or there wouldn't be a click track, but he'd keep up. Right. He was able to roll with the cacophonous anarchy of the project. Yeah, and then there was Joe Oliger, 
All right. So who ran sound for us for a little bit. Yeah. Did you know Joe before? Uh, yeah, through John, because I was always hanging out. Like even long before you were like ever with us, you know, we were always hanging out at 35 Laurel Drive with Clark Street and doing all stuff there. And, and you know, it's just one of those things. Joe was just part of the crew. Yeah, he was. Joe's a great guy. He Loved played guy. with Bed Light for Blue Eyes. That's right. For, for a, a little while. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. And Joe did a lot of the production on my third record. And Joe is a really good guy. And it's uh, it's just interesting to think about how deeply ingrained I became into the Jersey punk scene it's weird right? post-punk i guess hard post-hardcore scene because of shiftman than you and john yeah, right. and how i would spend so much time there and yeah it's, it's so crazy it's random life is crazy yeah you were like a nomad for a while too you'd I be in california so we did a lot of college shows during this like time when i was working on a ton of them robot kills because it paid the bills and it helped pay for the studio time and it was easy and it was easy and fun and mike russo worked for this company called who i'm gonna have on the podcast he worked for a company called concert ideas right so he'd get us all these shows and he'd recommend oh we got to do the cartel story oh my god yeah we do okay so russo would recommend us and i remember like everything he'd recommend us for and once i saw an email that he was they booked something and and he's like i have a recommendation and the and the Promoter's like, who? Someone he worked with at Constant Ideas. And Mike was like, MC Lars. And the guy wrote back, how could I have guessed? <laughs> People were tired of it. Well, because also like... Because <laughs> he'd play with us. Well, Mike started playing with us. So then it was like in his best interest to get us whatever shows he could. I mean, he and they didn't play. know this. Fall of 2008, when I was almost done with the record, and I was like going to qu- maybe quit doing MC Lars like, for good. And... That was when bo- the Bowling for Soup guys came came out and were like, we're going to help you finish Robot Kills. You know, the they crappy did that? I didn't know guys. that. Yeah, because the story there was I was doing demos at a studio with this guy, Daniel Dart, who was in a band called Time Again that um, Ran- Tim from Rancid had signed on Hellcat. Okay. And so I was doing all these demos and I ran into Linus, who was an engineer for Bowling for Soup in the lobby. And he's like, yeah, Jarrett and I are starting a label. So we sent him the demos and that's like, they kind of rescued that record they put the money and energy into finishing it right when the recession was happening and like i'll always be thankful to them because that album i feel like i don't know the years of work and like chaos and aimlessness and the privilege of having college shows and like great friends i could play with fed into this album which i would say is probably my best album that's crazy right yeah it's crazy it's out of nowhere that it was that randomness of that and so anyway i was you know I didn't know what was going to happen. And then Mike got us this tour, this corporate tour opening for Young Jock and Cartel. Right. On this thing, Crocs did these. Crocs Campus Invasion Tour. Every year. It was Crocs and Xbox 360. That's how old it is. Xbox 360. Right. So they had like stations set up for the kids to play Xbox every night. Um, That was the coolest experience I think I've had. Even like, I mean, obviously the UK tours were the best, but. This was such another experience. It was even more pro, believe it or not, as far as feeling goes. Like you felt like a pro. You were showing up to these schools. They had people helping you load in your equipment. There was catered breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. There was rolling sound and lights. So you knew that you started to know the crew. They started to know the songs. You know, like it was like. They were really good <clears throat> sound people. They were. And, and you know, it only took them a few shows. And the guy started, I forget their names, but he, he started to you know, know the songs and mix us well. Yeah. And and then we the lighting guy started to know when to put the lights and on. we had and video screens, which we'd yes, set up. Which and- were another disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, so Mike was on a tour bus because he was, you know, they didn't know he was, was he playing with us or not? No. Yes. Okay. They was. didn't know that he was. <laughs> and 
we'd always be angry because the routing was like ridiculous. Yeah. Like 13 hour drive. It was like warp tour it times was, two. It was horrible. And so you're in John's van, which thank God never broke down. No, we'd be so in so much trouble. But we'd be like sleeping at the rest stop. <laughs> I'd like, you know, I'd I'd lean my head to the right and there would be like a <laughs> like a projector screen like sticking out with like boxes, all like raggedy boxes we of merch, like a hundred thousand of them. It was just the most chaotic. Yeah, it was chaotic. It was it was crazy, but it was it is it made it great. It made it what it was. That summer, I was trying to do like funny topical YouTube stuff, and Cartel had done this. I don't know if I've talked about this in other podcasts. I don't think I really have. Well, it spawned from the original MC Lars podcast. Yeah, it was MC Lars uh, the MC Lars show or MC Lars yeah. podcast, and it was like do 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 with the little thing, the like, robot the song. yeah, the, the robot island music. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. It. and um, right. So it was an episode for that. So it would have been 2007. And it was centered around the, the Band in a Bubble thing. Yeah, so explain that background. So basically, they did the Band in the Bubble, the, I don't know, publicity stunt thing. And explain what that was. Some- so that was like a reality show where basically the whole band was in this bubble on like the South Street Seaport of New York City. And it was a clear bubble that any fan could walk up to and like see them living inside. And they were supposed to be writing their new album inside this bubble. And right. it was the whole trials and tribulations of production and management and dealing, being in a band. And it was like, you know, art is difficult. So, so I guess it became a joke. I mean, I guess obviously you picked up on it and that was, well, well, the thing was that they, the songs were written before allegedly they weren't writing. them. So they were just joke. They were kind of just going through the motions. They were demo. They were just doing the final thing. Right. So, but they were making it seem like they were writing and getting into arguments and like, you know, the struggles of writing an album. Maybe they were, but it was, but Dr. Pepper had sponsored it, and they were this huge band on the Militia Group, which was the label that had put out uh, the Laptop EP, Sideshow, which was a sub-label under them. So yeah. we were like label mates for a minute. And, and so they had left the Militia Group to sign to a bigger label, Atlantic or something. So yeah. there was a lot of like, oh, you're not indie anymore. Well, not only that, they were massive. And then all of a sudden, I guess like the album didn't do well. It wasn't very good. The major so, label one? Yeah. And then nobody, they lost, they like deflated like really fast. Like a bubble. Yeah. Right. And then you made this thing kind of ripping them. Well, while it was happening. Right. Where, and, and obviously there was, you know, topical. So you were doing it, but it's, I don't think there was any like, I hate these guys, but it was just like, they were, it was lame. Like, I'm not going to lie. It was lame. <laughs> well, 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 no, but like I, yeah. So my first Tom, my first manager had sent me this link. And so about them. So the joke was, that I was in a box on my parents' lawn, living at home. Yeah, and it was try- like a tunnel. Trying to get, trying to get Mountain Dew to sponsor my album. Uh huh. You're going yeah. PepsiCo USA, <laughs> and the guy like hangs up on you. So we made this video where I'm like, "Yeah, art is difficult." I don't know if the video's on anymore, but it is. I think. Okay, so friend Tim directed, and we created this whole thing about like me trying to make this album in a box, band in a box, yeah. one man band in a box. Yeah. So it was kind of like, very, and then there's a part where. We play their music, and underneath it, scroll says, "This is not good music." Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that was the that that part, and then the other part where at the end you come up with your own song, and you're pretty much saying like, "Call them corporate whores." And it's it was not nice. It, you know, it wasn't. But hey, but, I, I don't think that. I think it was a shared sentiment with everybody else in the world. I, you know what I mean? So it's not like you're the only one thinking that. And but then you're the only one that had the the guff to put it out, but or the stupidity. Yeah. Then we get on this this corporate tour with them, and what happens is they caught wind of it. They caught wind of it. Well, I guess they found out who was on the tour and then checked everybody out and like... And stupidly, I should have made that video private as soon as possible. Yeah, right. And well, because the thing is, that was like your most current content that you had put out. So it was the first thing popping up on any search and like, oh, let's see this. And like literally you shredding them to pieces and they're like, 
I think they tried to get us off the tour. Well, what happens is they called, their agent called, and Concert Ideas, and Mike picks up, and Mike's oh, like, hello. God. And thank God. And, and Mike's like, well, Crocs really wants Lars on, so we're afraid they're going to have to be on there. But Mike said later, if anyone else had picked up the phone, we would have been off. Because Back immediately. They, no one cared. We weren't selling tickets. We were just a no. favor to them, thinking that we were a cool opener. So right. Mike, so I get a message from Mike. He goes, well, I, Andrew, call me back. We knew this day would come. <laughs> <laughs> so I took it down and then things were tense between well, our they, camps. Things were definitely tense, but I remember like two of the guys being particularly nice to us. But then I think at the end, I think it was just all a show. Like they were just, I think those guys just didn't really have the nerve to outwardly be nasty to us. But, yeah. So well, they were nice to us, but then it came out at the end, like they were all kind of pissed. I mean, I would have been if someone had done a whole video challenging my artistic integrity and then they, they were opening for me and I couldn't not have them on the tour. Yeah, right. And I remember like... Uh, well, that's what happens when you don't have juice anymore. You can't, you can't, get, them off, you can't get them off. I know. I if remember, they were at the height of their popularity, we would have been off faster than you could say it. That's true. The irony it was also that um, it was a corporate sponsored tour. So I remember one of the guys, like the first night, he goes, welcome to the sellout train, Lars. Because yeah. we were playing on a Crocs tour. And yeah. then another time... Uh, yeah, the, they had the Dr Pepper bottle thing. Yeah, so they were like, "We're It'll drink, ruin your life." We were drinking Dr Pepper with with whiskey or something on the bus, and Will sticks his head and he goes, "Wow, Dr Pepper, that will really ruin your career." Yeah, people were like partying, and then we like that's when like the record, the needle skipped off the record, and we were like, "Yeah, I think it's time to go." <laughs> we were like part, and then I'm like, in hindsight, I'm like, "Why the hell did we ever, ever like have the chutzpah to get on their bus? Yeah, and, party and with actually them. party with them, right?" Which like. They I were should, so not, we're jerks. I know, but in hindsight, I probably would have been like, nah, thank you for the offer, but we're just going to chill out, like, just to kind of keep it separate. Well, we'd but, never really <clears> been <throat> on many buses, too. Yeah, and also, it was like a whole, like, even though they kind of hated us, that whole tour was a family feel, so. It was. You were with these people for, like, we were, that was like a third, like a 30-day tour. Oh, let's tell this Young Jock's <clears throat> birthday party story. Oh, that's, <laughs> I still share the pictures with you guys every now and again randomly. But So Young Jock and I kind of formed this friendship. Then for some of the younger or older listeners, this hit was, meet me in the mall, it's going down, yep. meet me in the street. It's about talking about a fight. And he had a dance where he's like revving the motorcycle. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 yeah. dun. <laughs> and so Young Jock and I would have these conversations about rap and hip hop and our love of old school hip culture and stuff so he so in atlanta on our night off he invited us to his birthday party and we were the only probably the only white people in this club in i don't know remember where in atlanta downtown atlanta or something like <laughs> and that the dj's playing stuff and everyone is so serious against the wall so because well the other thing is the whole crew is coming so we're but we just happen to get there super early the whole tour you mean yeah like the cartel was coming their crew members uh he invited everybody so we were like, we knew that there was some light at the end of the tunnel that we would be having. Did some, they come? I don't feel like the, anyone came. The, the the sound guys came and like the uh, the, the stage guys, like okay. the, the the crew, the road crew. Because Cartel is from Atlanta, and so is Young Jack, coincidentally. So right. they were at home with their families. Right, but the the crew was part of us, so they were coming. We knew they were coming, but when? Who knows? And it wasn't like iPhone days, really. So we were there mad early. Yeah, and it, that's so crazy. It was like two thousand seven. So we basically Eight, we still had. Or maybe it was eight. Yeah. But regardless, the iPhones had like, you probably had a first gen iPhone at that time. But maybe, yeah. It wasn't so easy to just whip out a, the phone and text somebody to say, where are you? But we're just waiting awkwardly in this place, feeling like sore thumbs, <laughs> like totally sticking out. And but then, we're there, we're friends of the, of the guy whose birthday it was. So it was cool. Nobody bothered us. But, you know, at that point it was like, so these, these women come up and they start dancing with you guys. And 
it's like this, you guys have these amazingly awkward looks on your faces because we don't want to like start anything and we don't want to like get in trouble. But like, so you guys are just like going through the motions dancing with these chicks. Well, no, we went in the middle and we just started dancing and these like wonderful African-American women were dancing with us because they were like enjoying our bravery. Yeah, I think our, so. Yeah. And maybe we were a little drunk. I don't know. I think it might have been. And, yeah. and there's these pictures of us like dressed my punisher shirt yeah. with these giant baggy pants my studded studded avril lavigne belt like i look like crap and your unkempt hair and sticking out of the bottom my, of the hat my blue a blue new york yankees hat which i was wearing for a minute yeah right and um us dancing and then everyone we kind of got the party started because we were yeah. fearlessly like ridiculous right and then people just started coming in and then we were kind of able to blend in a little bit better but that was a crazy night and then i remember jock had us come on stage what with him while he dj'd hanging out you're right in his club i mean that and jock, young jock and i for years would text each other how you doing man blah, really blah, blah. yeah but i haven't seen him in a while i invited him to our show in atlanta he couldn't come but but that's funny i mean it was awesome well and we also had like well, it was on our end, but I was going to say so a kind of like a symbiotic relationship because every time he, so basically he wasn't on the, on a bus, the guy would just fly from show to show and, and then he get had like no a, merch. and he would get like a cargo, like a 15 passenger van and just drive from the airport to the show with like his crew or whatever. And I guess what that's what a lot of rappers do. Right. But well, they got I guess they make a lot of money and it is what it is. But you know, so they were, I think they were, yeah, but they had a huge rider and he would have like buffalo right. wings and like ranch dressing and all these crazy things. And then like. We would come in like these raggedy little kids, like <laughs> walking in, and he would leave, but he would leave everything behind. That's true. So we would just go in and just take everything. And we had well, like cases of soda. We in the had van the same like, rider that we had in <laughs> the bread, peanut butter. But loaf, this time we had peanut butter MMs. It was like a loaf of whole wheat bread and a jar of peanut butter and like underwear and socks. We were kind of obnoxious in that backstage at these colleges. We would kind of be a little messy. Yeah, well, it'd be like We'd a locker a room. Mess. And then it would be a locker room with like bathroom stalls. So, like, I remember one time I was going to the bathroom and I just like started raining M&Ms on top of me. And I'm like, oh, this guy. And then it's like a tile floor in a locker room. So you can hear it like, like all like, like, like bouncing off of the floor. We were definitely a little out of control, but we also felt like impervious to, I don't know. Yeah, but because I our like, friend was working for the company that had booked the tour. Yeah, but then, but we should have been more on our best behavior yeah. because of that. But it's one of those things. It's just like we, I feel like, and other bands were probably could are probably way worse because we were always respectful and, but you know, we just got a little crazy. <laughs> well, Mike would always say, and he'd come in and there's like bananas and bread and, and M&Ms all over the floor. You go, you guys aren't doing yourselves any favors. <laughs> <laughs> Mike was like our dad or like semi disappointed dad. Like, one time you were helping in uh ohio where's where was the massacre the kent state massacre yeah. we played a show at kent and the, sc the screens weren't looking good and i just wanted to finish soundcheck i never really cared about soundcheck i was like let's just play and just pay me and we're done this is <laughs> you know i was just like tired and don't care i'm over it i don't yeah <laughs> don't another, care another mantra of where'd that come from well. that came from your twisted brain don't care i'm over it yeah like oh it was at the end of yeah anyway nope. so so uh you were fixing the screens and i was like you were trying to help the show, and I just poured a whole bottle of water down the, your butt crack. And <laughs> it was I'm so, so cold. sorry. I got so mad. I'm that, so sorry. That's okay. I was like, definitely like not at my best. It is what it is. It's stupid shit you that we me? do to me. Of course. Thank you, Rob. Long ago. Sorry. I wouldn't be here if I didn't forgive you. But it's one it of those things. That day. That day. Well, Cartel and knew, and, and, and they were like, oh. I remember there was like awkward because we were not talking. They're like, okay, guys, a little awkward in here. Yeah. Cause well, cause then we went to like lunch after sound check and it was catered and they had these wonderful like Mexican spread of like tortillas and steak and all this wonderful stuff. And 
we were fighting. Everybody was like, yeah, and everybody was like in their own little because you know, it's like a cafeteria at school, so there's like your little factions of people, right? And I remember being like, I got my food and sat as far away, like I was the only person at a table. Like I was like, I can't sit with you, I'm out of here. And then I just like kept it quiet the entire time. And then right before, like we went on stage, we did a little huddle, and it was like, I'm sorry, I love you. It was like we hugged it out, and that was yeah, the end of it. Yeah, and we played well. But that, if that's the most contentious it ever got between the two of us, then I think that we probably had a good thing going on. You know who we met that show? Nick Brophy. Nick Brophy. I forgot. A, Nick with, Jenkins. And he gave us those Tetris t-shirts. Yeah, and he was in a band called Something Different. He now manages like a GameStop in Toledo. He's married now, I think. And uh, Yeah. Nick was awesome. He was a good dude. Um, hey, Nick Brophy. Hey, Brophy. Okay, so, and that wasn't his last name. Man, this is taking me back. No, isn't it Jenkins or something? Yeah, Jenkins, I think. I think? Um, Mr. Jenkins. I feel like that's a name you would come up with for something. Jenkins sounds more f- fake than Brophy. Mr. Wormsley. Um, so, okay, so then we played, I remember, <laughs> yeah, another story. We played the the uh, Finger Lakes Grassroots Festival, which is like a folk festival in upstate that New York. That was crazy. And I remember we, we headlined. Out. We headlined twice. We camped out. And what was the story? Like, there was a guy, we moved some guy's tent. Well, I don't know. We got a tent from somebody. Yeah. And someone took it down. I don't remember. I just remember we, by the time we were ready to set it up, because we did everything last minute, it was super late at night. And it was like there were no like plots for us to put the tent. So we had to just kind of like pick a spot and just put it up. And then I remember the, it was like sleeping in an oven because the next day the sun came up and there was no cl- there was no trees, no shade. Yeah. I remember just being terrible, like waking up like, ugh, like so hot. And then I, re- I think I remember there was like it was like a hippie festival. So there were like yeah. these dudes smoking opium. I remember they like offered us opium. Yeah, no thanks. Well, Some I wasn't trying to or... smoke opium ever in my life. I would agree with you. And that was like, that was crazy. Like the, the hippie vibes of, yeah. Like yeah. The, the kind of people in the culture and like, it wasn't, it was just like festival. It was older guys smoking opium. Yeah, it was weird. No, and it was thanks. just like in a tent. Like it was dark. Little, yeah, it was kind of crazy. It was like, it's the last thing you want to be doing. Let's put it that way. Don't put yourself in that spot. And we were, you know, we'd always, <clears> we'd, there'd be weird situations where we would try to do the right thing and. Yeah, the college shows. And then all the shows in Rochester were so great because the WBR would always play stuff. And I remember one of Clark Street, you guys would open for us up there. The yeah, other once, band. yeah, at least once. I remember that. Yeah. And I did double duty. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about it. Because during all this, you had so many other projects you did. So Yeah, I was, always in a, I was always in doing something. But I mean, when we started all this, it was Clark Street. And that kind of fell apart. And then there was a time when you were recording with me a little bit, like the Scientology song. and Yeah, it was just to... all these random things. Like, because you were living in New York. So it was, you were yeah. going into, you know, and you would just always hit me up on a whim. Hey, hey Rob. I, yeah, yeah, can you come help me do a studio session? Want to play some bass? And it yeah. was always like one of these things, like, I never expected it to even like come to fruition because it was just like you were almost demoing these ideas. And that song came together pretty crazy in the studio. The Scientology song, yeah, which was on the Twenty One Concepts. It came later album. on, right? Yeah, and that was that was kind of cool because then I got my, I get to put my input like playing a bass line, but then like you didn't tell me not to give you any recommendations or any kind of ideas in the while you were in the booth, which I thought you know I w- I didn't want to step oh, yeah. on toes, so I didn't want to just like start thinking I, w- I could be a part of the process, but. I had an idea I would tell you, and you actually ended up using some of the stuff I like. Yeah. I suggested, which was I always thought was cool. Yeah, some other stuff too. So you good? Well, you'd write good lyrics. You're a good rapper. Well, it is what it is. I mean, I don't know if I. I never really took it serious to like come up with some. That was always my problem. I thought tone, but 
because you know it is what it is. I just I can figure out you're what a good sounds singer good. too. You that's one of the things I love about working with you is you'd sing the harmonies great. I would try. You try you my best. you were very influenced by Deftones and a lot of post hardcore stuff. Yeah, I mean at first at the, early on I was a big punk rock guy, so I listened to a lot of the SoCal like Fat Records punk rock bands, and that's what I really grew up on. But you're a big No Effects fan, huh? Yeah, kind of. Uh, Lagwagon is probably my favorite band. Did you read the No Effects autobiography, the Hepatitis Bathtub? No, I didn't, but I heard it was awesome. The audiobook is great because they all read their sections. That's, That's kind of awesome, cool. Dude. That's cool. Yeah. You know what it is? It's it's like, as I got older, I kind of like, I, I don't, I, this is where it hit me with no effects that I realized that was kind of like, they, well, they jumped the shark for me. I know that's not really the appropriate way to say it, but where I kind of, they kind of lost me was they started putting out, well, they just continued to put out records, but I never thought the records were that good. Yeah. And I remember going to see them live and I was so stoked and they played like three or four songs that I knew in their whole hour long set. And that's how I knew. I was like, I don't know any of their yeah. material anymore. Like, and they're now they're just playing the classics when that was the entire set when I would go see them. Because it meant the you're classics. getting older. Right. And then that kind of like got me like, yeah, maybe I need to graduate to something a little more, not mature, but you know what I mean? Like I still, ha- it still has a place in my heart. And I still listen to the stuff all the time. Like Linoleum, like, that's such a jam. Oh my God. It's amazing. But do, do you feel like they jumped a shark? Like reading the book, it seems like Fat Mike alienated people when they started getting really political that and then and then but but even i have a friend who's like a pretty right-wing dude and he loved no effects and he was a big supporter of like george w bush like loved him and he's singing the war on errors i'm like you know right, he, and right. he would and i remember him telling me he's like i hate the content but he's like i just love the music it's so good that i just i can see past it and i just i end up singing the song he's like it pains me that i'm singing these lyrics but i just love the music yeah so it is what it is but i just thought I don't know. I, I found I found Fat Mike to be a little hypocritical. Like the way he he put his politics out there so much, but he's clearly a, a, a capitalist. I mean, the guy's right. This guy's super rich. You know, I once when I wrote Hot Topic is not punk rock, I Googled that phrase, see if anyone had written a song about it. And he'd said it in an interview. Yeah, and I'd is, already come up with the idea, but he'd said interview and like, so I want to credit him for like having said that before me. Well, right. And I, I mean, I admire his like, I don't give a shit attitude where he just does whatever he wants to do. But and I even almost for like for like I don't know it, it almost when he when they got into that controversy where they started canceling all the shows because he made the bad joke about the Vegas shooting. Yeah, right. I kind of was like, part of me was like, yeah, you know, you can't get away with it all the time too. If that's how you're going to be politically, uh huh. And you would rip anybody else apart for saying something like that, then it's yeah, this is what you deserve. Like, well, you, you, know? you, you can't joke about a mass shooting. It, it's really bad. And, it's in poor taste. But and that's just the way they do it. That's, that's yeah, the punk thing of their like shtick. pushing limits. Right. Especially theirs. They always, they never gave a shit about what they said or who they offended. It was like, screw you. But you know what's interesting about mm. that book is El Jefe. Yeah. He, 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 was, he had a recording studio in Northern California and he talks about like what it was like producing all these rappers in the 90s in, in Eureka, Arcata, like the north coast of California and how it was like chaotic up there and how like being on tour made it hard for him to manage this business, especially in an area that was so like overrun with like the dr- drug culture. You know, it's like so like that area is known for like there's a lot of like drug trade right. and how his his staff and stuff were very like untrustworthy and it's interesting seeing like how that book, how their business decisions kind of went hand in hand with the band and like how they navigated that. And it must be, it's like, it's hard becoming a, I don't know, a band that's political where, versus Bowling for Soup. Their whole thing is more like pop punk, fun songs. Right. They never had to, they never tried to be like 
punk political at all. Well, it's up it's up to the individual, in my opinion. If you have the platform, it's up to you how do you want to, how you want to use it. But right. But and you earned that platform, so use it however you want it. No big deal. But you have to understand you're going to alienate some people and piss people off, which they obviously don't care about. But you know, it's just one of those things that Bowling for Soup wanted to have fun. That's their person, more of their personalities. Like, you know, no effects are always joking around. Fat Mike's always making jokes and stuff like that. But it's, you know, when that's when that's every song just becomes political and that's, yeah, it kind of becomes tired after a while. Would you say Bowling for Soup have remained their bigger band than no effects or is it hard to know? I don't know. Ah, uh, they're, uh, yeah, I think they're way bigger. They had more yeah. commercial success. Yeah. But, but similar no, in that it's like the, the guys who, the friends who joke between songs and the pop punk. Right. Right, but they went major label, I guess. Well, yeah, and they had major hits, huge top did we forty do, hits. Didn't we do some shows with Bowling for Soup together? Or? I don't think we ever did. I just yeah. I remember one time in particular we went to their like album listening party. Oh, in some Mexican restaurant in Manhattan. You and I, you invited me. Oh, it was the burrito extortion case. Yeah, that would have been oh six, oh seven. And I think that was. Were they there? Yeah, yeah. I remember we were talking to Jared in the bathroom. That was when I met him, and yeah. I remember him just being really nice to me, which such a nice guy. I didn't expect. You know what I mean? I did not that I didn't expect it, but it's always just like it's like, oh, cool, this guy actually acknowledged me. You know what I mean? Like he's a big star. It is what it is. But yeah, I was they, with you, so it was cool. That was probably our last long tour we did together. Uh, you're probably right, and then everything else was one-offs for that after that. Yeah, or a couple days here or there. When did we last play together? Right Ten after years? right after Robot Kills came out. Wow. That was, we did a tour and then I kind of stopped doing it. And I was in California. Yeah, you were getting busy and then it was like the dy- the band dynamic was changing and it just became a thing like I ended up having less time to devote to learning the new material. Because you got a real job at that point. Well, yeah, and I, I always kind of did, but I might have been part-time. They let me go on tour. It was like something I could always work around it, but then I started working full-time and it was harder for me to just say, get up and go. Um but then, too, it was one of those things like you, we were never really that regimented as far as like it had to be this way of playing it. Like we were figuring it out as we went and you never really it's just the way you are. You were like, yeah, that's close enough. Good. Like you weren't really a stickler in the early days to no. be like play it this exact way. But then that tour was like out of nowhere. Then DJ came and he's more like that. And yeah, that's why he, he was always the music director. Well, right. And then. It was like so much in such a short amount of time to to learn that I didn't really have it. And it was like, it just didn't work out well. And it's like... Was there, there was, was, oh, I think it was like the Bowling for Soup tour. He, we, we were going to like try to actually replay the parts to be more verbatim what was on the album. Yeah. And that was like, that became a roadblock where it was like, we're changing everything. Well, right. And then it was like, and he knew everything because he was on the ground floor with you when you recorded it all. Yeah. But then like for the past three years, we had been playing it a certain way. And then all of a sudden I had to just up and change it. And it was like way too much in way too short of a time. Yeah. And then it just kind of like, that's when we kind of just stopped playing together. It wasn't like a negative experience or any kind of like you're yeah. fired. It just, you just kind of started going in a different direction. And I think you started really, the band was like, hemorrhaging money for yeah the, yeah the it was i mean i think what happened was then we did a few years with christine doing the beats and john playing drums and then well, that the, was the last tour she was on with yeah. us and it was like a it was you were on that tour with us yeah and yeah. it was like a it was like a like me like a week or something like with that bowling a week, for soup though a week no it wasn't it was it was on your own oh and she was opening yeah it was like your robot kills tour or something like that your first one here and it was like smaller shows um rochester of course was great yeah right rochester i remember we did a pittsburgh show at this little, this With little POS's like, band. 
Yeah, and and the dude from Punchline's side project, I think. Gene the Werewolf. Yes. Oh, and so she and then that was the last tour that I did with you, and that was the last. She was on it with DJ and John. It was like a totally new dynamic. Totally. And it, and Joe was there with us, and I just, I it was Joe was on and off. Yeah, he was with us on that tour. I, you know, so it was one of those things. It just kind of stopped after that for the most part. And then it became then for years it was doing stuff with MC Chris and the Nerdcore guys. What was just laptop, which is you know, I mean, I when I do that, I'm able to not lose money. <laughs> well, and it's also probably way less stressful. You don't have to worry about anybody else and kind of, yeah. you know, leading the troop. You're just kind of with yourself and whoever you bring with you. And that's the end of it. What ended Clark street and how did that merge in the balance between Clark street had a lot of issues very early on when I joined. Well, they were a, an established, not established, but they were a band for a while before I joined. Then my buddy joined drums. Then I joined after that. And I remember was, you had the Mario two shy guy sticker. That yeah, was tight. yeah. 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 I love that. That was a great sticker. I still yeah. have a bunch actually, but Oh, can I get some? Yeah, I'll get you one. <laughs> um, but Long story short, uh, after years of like not having a drummer or not having a guitar player, being a three-piece when we didn't want to be, auditioning singers because we thought it would be better off, uh, we finally got a little group together and then... Dave was in Clark Street? Yes. And then Dave... It was his band first. He's the one that started Then he the was in Bounce Between briefly? No, never. So that was uh, Brian, right? Yeah, Brian. So basically Brian was in Clark Street like the last couple years and that's when we kind of finally had our consistent... We had Brian and then we've got... John. And then we bid like two and a half years playing a lot and whatever. Then Jeremy joined? No. no. He was never a part of it. But basically what happened was Clark Street played a show with the original guitar player of A Balance Between's other band. And I knew him from back in the day. He recognized me. He saw our band play and he said, hey, I'm doing this band with Jeremy. We're going to record some songs, but we wanted we have like a month to do it. You guys obviously are good what at what was that band? Do. What? Uh, well, well, this was Balance Between? Yeah, this is how Balance Between started. He convinced him to, to start a band, and then basically he they needed a drummer and a bass player to help them record like two tracks that they wanted to bring to Warp Tour Yeah, to hand out to people that they knew because they had been on Warp Tour before. So uh, he's like, can you guys help us and just record these two songs? And he's like, I don't know. I think he has people in mind to be in the band other than you guys, but like, you know, if you could help us, maybe who knows what happens. Mm. And it, we started playing together, and it just kind of clicked. And at that point, John, I guess, was like done with Clark Street. So he decided, I'm just going to play with these guys. So I quit. And at that so point... John quit Clark Street to only be in balance between. Correct. Yeah. And he was kind of like losing John interest. John Thatcher Longley. Yeah. yeah. And he was losing interest anyway. But uh, I'll try to make it quick. Basically, what happened was Dave and I had gone through trials and tribulations with the band like for years. And I was like, honestly, I'm not going through it again, trying to find another drummer. It was hell before. It's going to be hell again. He kind of agreed, let's just slow it down. Let's just take a break. And I'm like, oh, and by the way, I'm going to play with the Bounce Between. And I don't think he liked it very much. He kind of, we're, we're friendly now, but I, I don't know. He never played with Bounce Between? Did no. he come on for a minute? Never. But then what was after Bounce Between? Well, now it's Red Hymns. And so Bounce Between still plays shows, but we play shows as like a cover band. Okay. We have a spot that we play that we get paid yeah. and we just kind of, we, we play like two hours of like classic rock and 80s and 90s songs. That's right. Yeah. Do you sing? Yeah, I sing backups in it, but yeah. So basically, it's one of those things we just like. And you know, we played we played a show recently uh, without Brian. He didn't he didn't really want to be involved, but we Clark Street did or balance no balance between okay. And then we did like a new song that we wrote. Yeah, um, but you know, it's probably going to just be that everybody's got too much going on now. But why do you think Jersey has always had such great bands and like 
such great live music. Like since the beginning, it's weird, right? How it, it's just. Why it, do you think that is? I don't know. I guess it's whoever. I guess the people living in that area were were better at it than other people, or maybe it was just being so close to Manhattan. Um, right. Because I mean, my parents' house is literally a couple of miles uh, off of the the George Washington Bridge. And the fact, right, you're kind of in like Long Island too. I guess you're influenced by this metropolis, but Long Island is this kind of terminus. Brendan from Weedus said that like it's a terminus and that it's like you can't it's one way in and then you know what I mean you can't you have to go that way out so well, so right. people get kind of they just stay in and play music do you think could Jersey maybe because it's suburban and well that's it and I think also when it was really blowing up like the punk rock scene it was like you know we we grew up in a time where I it's really a great time where we had we grew up with technology developing but we also uh, for the our adolescence we didn't have to technology like we do now right so what would you do you went to a show and literally you watched every band and all your friends were there and, and you stick around that's what you did and people had flyers and zines and and yeah. it was like this really strong bread community which now there's this facebook group it's like uh, nj pop punk 94 to whatever 2000 uh-huh. and it's like literally everybody who was either in bands or part of that scene that's cool yeah and it's like you, everybody can still like people share their old flyers and their old t-shirts that they find. And, um, this one guy, Mike Doyle's doing a podcast called, uh, this was the scene. Cool. And he's interviewing every single person that had anything to do with that scene. That's cool. And everybody's flipping out for it because it's like all the reminiscence and, and stories and stuff like that. Pop punk ha- and ska too, I guess has this yeah. nostalgia because before the internet changed things and then before the internet being in all our pockets changed things. And I feel like, right. The MC Lars stuff, especially the the early stuff, was indicative of everything that was changing, right? So the, right. was the pop punk energy and the hip hop, and then rapping about iPhones and stuff before, right? While it was all happening, right? What were some of the? Do you think legendary other than Clark Street and Balance Between and Red Hymns, like some of the legendary pop punk Jersey bands? Uh, well, Lifetime would be the first one that comes to mind. Oh for yeah, me. yeah. Um, they were legendary, and then you have you have uh, Bouncing Souls. Oh. Uh, you have Saves the Day. Oh. So, I mean, those are just a few off the top of my head. Streetlight, but that's more ska. Were they yeah. s- Jersey? Yeah. I believe they were, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were Catch-22 also before yeah. that. Yeah. So that's where, I think Catch-22 is really what started it. And then Streetlight, it was the same singer and a couple of the guys, I think, moved over. And then they broke your banner in a fit of Oh, that's rage. the story. We were, yeah, we played the Starland Ballroom, it was like summer of 06. Uh-huh. And they had bad sound and the singer came back and was just like, Breaking everything backstage and yeah, snap the banner in half. Yeah, because we took the banner off the stage and then just left it there while we were kind of like coming down on winding. In, the, in their green room, which we probably shouldn't have done. Yeah, well, it was the because we didn't really have a green room, so we just threw it in there to be out of the way. And then he just came in and kind of just started like he was having a hissy fit because he had bad monitors. Yeah, because oh god forbid. <laughs> no, no, but he was nice and he paid for it and like yeah, I'd always have this freestanding banner that was such a production the setup, but it looked good. It just meant that like. It was a scrim that we didn't have to hang yeah. from things. Now, these days, I don't do banners or video Banner screens. and It's too much. Like Banner Patrol, yeah, it's always like, or Merch, merch Patrol. Merch Patrol. Rob, can you do Merch Patrol every you night? You always make merch look good. Yeah, because I have OCD, you know, so I was always like folding everything, making sure it looked perfectly square. Thank you. But, you know, and that's one of those things. Like Amanda, my girlfriend, got read hymns. She did our artwork, so she was really into it, and she got a banner made for us when we really started to play shows. Yeah. It's like a 10-foot 10 foot by three or four foot banner. Yeah. And I bought a similar stand to the one you had. That's like the, uh, the trade show sure. like, banner. Freestanding. Stand. Yeah. Yeah. It's freestanding. It's got the two things. You put it together, all the poles, and then, you, you know, you can extend it or whatever. But, 
I mean, we've used it as much as we can, like when we're headlining our small venues and stuff like that. But it's like, it's just, it's too much to just set up. And like, if you're not playing last, it's hard. Like you have to set it up somewhere and leave it there. And it's like, it just, it, it's more trouble than it's worth sometimes. I think a lot of the marketing stuff like that was back then it was harder to like instantly know who was playing and when and stuff. So having like little production like that was helpful. Right. I don't know. I remember like um, the guy who was the recent, the most recent drummer of my new band, Red Hymns, he played in a band back in the day uh, called Jettison. And they, I remember when we started, Clark Street was playing shows at the beginning with them. They had like every kind of merch you could imagine. They had matchbooks with their logo on it, lighters, you know, bottle openers. And it's just yeah. like, it's something I feel like doesn't happen anymore. Like merch was such a huge thing. And now unless nobody buys ICP. it anymore. <laughs> well, right, right. Or unless you have some kind of notoriety. Otherwise, you know, yeah, we have we have hoodies for our van that we just got. We have some t-shirts. We have like decent designs. But it's, it's one of those things. It's like you bring it to the show. You set it all up. And nobody really buys anything anymore. You're lucky mm. people want to buy your album. And it's like. It's it's such such a rough struggle anymore to do it. So you, it's like really a labor of love if you're doing it. Still, I feel like. Yeah, I think so too. I I definitely like. I used to do hoodies. I don't. You know, the hoodie people always ask me, "When are you going to print more hoodies?" And it's just expensive. It's expensive. Hoodies is like they're twenty dollars each to make. So if you do a hundred, it's yeah. two grand. And then if you're doing a new design, you have to set up a screen, which is another fifty bucks. And then yeah. you have to, you know what I mean? It's like it's it's it makes me mad when I see bands selling hoodies for thirty five dollars. But then I it's like on the other on the converse, I I understand why. You have to. You have to. It's like you if you're going to try to make even ten bucks on it. Yeah. You can't. You, what do you? Yeah, like you have to start charge that much, and then it's a deterrent. Nobody wants to buy it. What is Red Hymns working on? You guys, you've been in the studio, right? Yeah. So our idea from the beginning was to do it a little differently than normal. Instead of putting out full length records or an EP, uh, we decided we were going to. And it, it's not like a concept. We didn't really have any plan in mind, but we decided the approach was going to be let's do four three song EPs. We're calling them EPs, but I think if it's three songs, when it comes to TuneCore and putting your stuff online, they consider it a single. Uh, but four three, songs, e- uh, four three song EPs, we're calling them volume one through four. And the artwork is all, it's it's a painting that Amanda did. And basically we're using the corners of the artwork and it's kind of all similar, but That's different. cool. Oh, so it's like one picture. It, yeah, so it yeah. kind of looks like one picture, but it's obviously all thematically the same. It's the same painting. It's just a different corner. And then... We just did volume three in the studio. So we're getting it mastered right now. Uh, we'll be releasing that in the spring, I believe. What is your rehearsal schedule like with Red Hymns? We we were really gung-ho at the beginning. We were doing like at least two to three days a week. It kind of slowed down to about one day a week now. We do Tuesdays and then we try to do as many Saturday afternoons as possible. Wow. Because we try to do every other Saturday because, you know, yeah. we all have lives and who's married and who has just things going on. But uh, it's just one of the, you know, we try to do that because Saturday seems to be the best time to actually work on things and hammer yeah. stuff out because you have that extended amount of time. It's early in the day. Nobody went to work all day. Yeah. Because, you know, usually we practice by like seven o'clock at night on Tuesday and, you know, by the time you get there, you just want to, all you can think about is going home to relax. Yeah. So, so you have that, you're recharged. Right. But, you know, that's what we're doing and, and that's it. I mean, we, these songs came together. We're pretty proud of them. They're a little different. Um, we have a weird, it's funny enough. It's like, our guitar player comes up with most of the song ideas. That's how we started this That's band. Jeremy? No, uh, Alex. Is Jeremy still in the band? Yeah, he's the singer. And he was in that band Near Miss. Yeah. Back years ago. Yeah, right. Right. So that's how he kind of has his connection. So what's the lineup currently? Uh, currently, it's Jeremy, uh, vocals. It's this guy, Alex, playing guitar, and it's me playing bass. So it's musically a three-piece. And then we had a drummer named Monkey who recently left the band. And now we're playing with this guy named Wes who recorded on volume three. And we're trying to get him up to speed 
uh, so that we can start playing shows. But you know, he's got a. What's the hardest to find? What what drum, good drummers or like what is the? I guess it really depends, like based on what you need. But yeah, good drummer. It's for me. It's not even talent wise. It's like reliability. That's the hardest thing. Somebody who's on the same page as you. Because the three of us, it's a hard thing to find that we're very dedicated. We try to, you know, I could be spending, I could be home spending time with my girlfriend and she's very understanding and she's amazing. Yeah. So she doesn't bother me when I'm like Thursday night. I'm like, oh, by the way, we're going to practice on Saturday and I'm going to be gone for four hours on a day where we could maybe be doing some stuff together. Yeah, right. Uh, or like, you know, cleaning the house that needs to be done or, yeah. you know, a million other things grownups have to do. But, you know, it's, she's really cool about it. She likes the music. So that helps. But it's, it's just one of those things like that level of dedication, you know, our former drummer, uh, he lived further away than us. So it was hard for him to justify coming up all the time, but yeah, you know, we're ready to go and we're itching to play and it's just the way we all are. And it makes it hard when we don't have everybody firing on all cylinders. So more than, but a good drummer is very hard to find. You were saying like your guitarist, you said writes a lot of the initial ideas. Yeah. So it's like, and that was the whole idea We Jeremy and I had been bands forever where he, was the predominant songwriter and he's the kind of guy he can come up with like a whole idea and show you the whole song and then we tweak it. That's great. Yeah. Or he has a riff that we all work on together. It was like a very fluid situation, but with this band, it was like a breath of fresh air for the two of us to not really be coming up with the song ideas, but where we brought our value was Al had all these ideas. He would come up, he would show us the riff, but there really wasn't anything put together. So Jeremy and I would take our experience writing together uh, we're very similar in the, how we hear things. Right. And we would kind of take the songs and the, uh, the ideas and then we would craft them in Al's vision. But, you know, with our kind of the overseeing or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, to kind of put them together. So it made it this interesting thing. And for the first time in his life, Jeremy's not playing guitar. He's just oh, singing. Oh. So it made a different dynamic for us we weren't used to. He kind of had to get used to that. And for me, kind of just to be sitting back and playing bass, it's like same thing for me. But... It's just a different vibe. It's like he, Alex comes from a more metal school. Yeah. And we come from punk rock and hard rock. So it's a little out of our comfort zone to play these riffs. It's way different than what we were used to. Well, that's kind of the what I love about post-hardcore music. Like when I did see you guys, it reminded me a little of the Deftones. Right. We get that a lot. Yeah. And it's right. like that... In a good way, right? right? Like that idea of where it's well, like... We do our own thing, but they inspire us clearly. Yeah. Punk is about playing fast and sloppy and loose and having energy and post hardcore is more about like technical breakdowns and harmonies and solos and being tight. Yeah. Just like, so it's like if you were to take black flag and Slayer, right. And like the baby post hardcore sounds like the fusion of that, but there's also like a, it's a different personality type. Someone who's in the black flag in the seventies versus Slayer. I right. Don't know. It's what do so you think? true. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And, and, and what kind of people, like what's the difference between a metalhead and a punk rocker and a post hardcore person? Punk rock, is, punk rock is happier than metal. Yep. Sounding. Maybe more libertarian or more like a blue collar. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But metal is the same way, but it's yeah. just, it's edgier, harder, darker. Um, more pentagrams and gothic fonts. Yeah, right, right. And and just the vibe of it, you know? And then you have your post-hardcore that's more the blend of the two where, but I feel like post-hardcore is like all the heavy elements of metal, but then it has melody to it. That was kind of where post-hardcore and emo was kind of like rites of spring, that whole thing, right? Right, right, exactly. So to me, it's like the best of both worlds. So it gives you that melody where you have that something to catch you, but then you have that heaviness where you might scream a little bit, but for the most part, you're singing. When I think about pop punk, I always think of the first pop punk band that came from a punk 
genre, punk background, DIY background was kind of really Nirvana because they were kind like, of. they came up in punk, but Kurt loved the Beatles. And so that was like, and then in a way, post-hardcore with like, maybe not so much. I don't know. You can't really call Nirvana post-hardcore. No, but you they were so punk. I mean. It's so and then, melodic. And then seeing, watching Montage of Heck in oh, particular. you saw, saw that? Yeah, it was I cool. I love that. I didn't see the other one yet, which I'm really interested in seeing. What's the other but, one? Uh, bleached or something like that? or oh, Soaked in Bleach? Soaked in Bleach, Which yeah. is about the uh, Courtney Court, conspiracy. Yeah, which, which is, a, that movie is a little crazy and biased, I think. What, a little uh, conspiracy kind of? Yeah. But it, I mean, hey, I don't, I haven't looked into it too much, to be honest with you, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. But from what I've heard, it, I, I don't find it to be a surprise if she had done something like that. Well, I think the story is that they were fighting and he kind of was you know she right she was going to cheat on him she did already yeah and he kind of it drove him to yeah that was the last girl i went to when i was in i play show in seattle a year or two ago and i drove past his house and hung out in aberdeen it's crazy with that bench outside and stuff weird town it is weird you went there no but i know of it yeah like you can sit under the i went under the bridge there and and there's heroin needles under the bridge downtown wait so people they're paying homage to him by doing drugs there all this art and yeah, and his house was for sale for years. No one wanted to buy it. It recently sold. And it's like, Aberdeen is rough, dude. It's a bad that, bad area. It's just rough. It's like so far away from everything is forgotten. And a lot of like opiates have definitely destroyed that well, town. I was going to say, that's why he's sitting there just writing music all day. But yeah. to me, it, it, and what I was going to say was, it's so punk rock because that's what really made me think of it. Like seeing them playing in a bedroom at a house, like some dilapidated house. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And like playing a show. And it's like, just hearing the, all the stuff early on, the way he like... I don't know. It's just even just in his voice, it's like it was so punk rock to me. Nirvana was punk rock. To make it marketable, they had to talk about the Northwest flannel wearing aesthetics of it. But like moshing came from pogoing, which was like something the Sex Pistols started. Right. I was talking to Ashley about this the other day. How like I feel like talking about sea changes and cultural movements that that was a there won't be another band like Nirvana because they were the last band to make an underground thing super mainstream and now there's no real distinction and i think right i don't know that's where the urgency and the need for playing for passion is so paramount do you know what i'm saying yeah it's true well and there isn't really an underground anymore because everything there's so much exposure to everything now anybody can start something and just put it out there what do you think of modern music is there anything you like or i'm so pop music not really to be honest with you i mean there's a few of the bands that I stick with that I like, like Thrice or Deftones, right. I feel still put out really good music. I'm stoked that Quicksand's putting out new music. Um, but I just, I don't know. I can't, I can't get into any of the newer stuff, to be honest with you. You I don't, don't like any of the pop? Do you like any rap stuff? No, no, not really. It's I don't really listen to it, to be honest with you, anymore. So I wouldn't really know. But I just don't like, yeah. I don't like the content. So it's not anything that I would find myself liking. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like it's just nonsense i love kendrick and i love like well there's the a lot of rap right yeah. right so but you know for me but, it's like something like most deaf would be something i'd be into but what there's nobody doing anything like that what do you think is the last great mainstream rock band like a huge band yeah I'm trying to think i mean the last big band Foo fighters yeah but like newer imagine dragons are kind of the last one of the last big yeah ones. you're probably right but I don't like them either. Yeah. I mean they have their catchy songs and you sing and you it, it stays with you so it's like they're doing something right but it's just cheesy. I don't know. To me. That's why the underground is so important. That's why like the podcast medium is so important. And like, I think there's like a badge of honor to put a heck of time into a YouTube video or something. You only get like 500 views. Well, that's the problem. You, you, everything is disproportionately directed. Right. But that's okay. I think that's okay if you care about it. But it's funny. It's like, I don't know. 
it's like how do certain things hit and certain things don't? It's like so weird how people pick and choose what they like. Well, I think it's it's algorithmic and like the big YouTube creators who have more subscribers get more supported. And if you're on a major label, they trick the views to look like things happen virally. But music is so weird because like for me, it's like it's almost like a pride thing. Like you wear these bands as a badge of honor, what you like. Right. Sure. So how could you how could you love something that's so, for lack of a better term, stupid? It's like these lyrics, these these hip hop songs that are out there. It's like they're so unintelligent. It's just about. Right. Yeah, like you're saying, Xanax and and money and guns. Yeah, and like right, and like yeah, to me, it's just it's lame. It's like why are why are you into? How could you be into that? Like you're just a sheep. And uh, well, I always yeah, I always felt it's interesting because now it's the guys of it's the SoundCloud underground rappers. It's like that's the new punk rock in a way. This is a common theme on this podcast, like people doing these grimy at home laptop rap. Yeah, beats right. And, um, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I think one of the bands that I really appreciate that as intelligent and put out a lot of great stuff and still pretty relevant. It's Descendants. And you got right. me into them. Yeah, they're great. What's that? When I Grow Up? Yeah. Yeah, I remember you sent me that song. Yeah, and like, yeah, You have always been a big influence on my taste and introduced me to bands that I maybe not have listened to. I wouldn't expect that thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like, I would never think that. That you were an influence on me musically? Yeah, right. Did I introduce you to things? Of course. Like, what's some stuff? Johnny D and the Baby Munchers? Yeah, well, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that um, funny. Trying no. to catch me eating babies. Yeah, right. No, just like, every, like, I don't know. It's just everything else. Like, I don't have anything in particular that I can say, but yeah. just the whole experience was something. You know what I mean? Like, that the, that whole five years of my life was like a whirlwind. It was crazy. We were fated to meet. It's and so, I'm glad we stayed friends, man. Of course. How could we not? But what advice would you have given me at 23? And then I'll tell you like three things I would have told you at 23. Should I go first? Yeah. Say what? Don't be afraid of moving out of your parents' house earlier. Yeah, right. Of course. The second thing, maybe don't be afraid to quit Clark Street earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one would have been to not need the approval of the gatekeepers. Of yeah, but to be honest with you, it's like if I were going to give you a piece of advice, it wouldn't be any. It would be just don't stop. Right. Don't stop. Because you not stopping continue to like, it's crazy to think about it though, that you're still doing it. It is weird. And it's like you're still doing it like actively. Like it's not, you haven't slowed down at all for the most part. Like it's so crazy to me. Like it just, right. you know what I mean? And there's still a market for it out there. You're still like, bringing kids to shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's really lucky. And that's been because Nerdcore it was never cool. So it never became uncool. Well, right. But you also got in with the certain people who are still doing it themselves as well. So you guys can just stick together and, yeah. you know, go out there. Which is lucky. Of course. Yeah. It's great. Maybe advice like I would have told myself, don't pour water down Rob's pants. We was trying to help. And here's the thing between you and I. <laughs> you and I knew exactly how to push each other's buttons in the, right. in the way that was going to infuriate each other. But something like that wouldn't have gotten you too mad. Yeah, but no. Yeah, it wouldn't. First of all, literally shit happens. So <laughs> there's no way that I would have gotten mad at you for it. But, right. you know, that's just part of my personality. So I always be like, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> Whatever. You know, but. What else pushed your buttons that I did? Oh, you want to know that I think, which you wouldn't even guess that this would be the one, but the one thing that got me so mad, you were on the tear and it was Chappelle show time and it was uh, brothers be napping. You kept texting, you kept texting me and I was like, cause it was, was, um, what was the Chappelle show reference? Brothers be what? I forget what it was. Yeah. It was brothers be something. Okay. It was like Paul Mooney or something like that. Yeah. And, and you got on this tangent it was just, I'd be like in the back of the van trying to sleep on this like 11 hour drive. And it would just be like, and I had a, at this point, I had like a prepaid cell phone because it was like 07. Right. And it was you like. You couldn't turn your phone off? I could, but it was like, whatever. And he just kept texting me and it was like, bzz, 
bzz, bzz, <laughs> like 10 seconds in between and it would just be brothers be napping. <laughs> Brothers be napping. Why, Brothers be napping. I you to wake up and like joke around me. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> so I was like, and, and then it was like a stretch of two or three days where it was nonstop. And I was just like, would you stop? Like, the and then as soon napping. as I, as soon as I like showed that I was like pissed, that's when you just like ramped it up and kept it going. Like, so you maybe sometimes you learn like, if I don't react, he'll stop. Right. I remember one time speaking of texts and calls, we were so mad. So we had to do like this 14 hour drive. And we got to the venue, the school, and we were sleeping. This was the Crocs College Tour. And Mike, our our incredibly patient, kind tour manager, for some reason, we were like kind of jealous that he was sleeping on the bus. Yeah. So, so we, we just all <laughs> relentlessly started calling his cell phone. Because yeah, like, like, we he was so obviously, jealous. Well, he was busy like working. No, I think he was sleeping. Yeah, but I remember one time in particular, we showed up to the show and we like didn't know where to go. We showed up to the college and, and we, we just kept calling him. And he was like on the bus trying to coordinate whatever he was trying to coordinate. And he's like, shut up, leave me alone. Give me a minute. Did he pick up? Finally. But, no, but this one time he he was sleeping and we, we'd we gotten there and we were able to sleep in the locker room. And we called him like 50 times and left these really long messages. Yeah, I think that was High Point University, actually, because that, that's the one I remember sleeping. Where was that? North Carolina, I think. You got your memories awesome. I and so. and he, was, he remember, he, he thought that someone had died. Because yeah, he looked, there's like 50 missed calls. <laughs> We were all on our phones. Like, but just, the, I would have taught myself, don't be a jerk and don't be like a out of control, rowdy 23-year-old to the people who are hooking you up. Don't bite the hands that feed you. Don't tickle like the peop- the armpits that are lifting you up. Yeah, poking the bear. Always like I always felt like misdirecting like my frustration or yeah, that was something I would have taught myself. Be don't a, be passive aggressive. That's probably number one I would have told you. Yeah, right. I was had trouble being direct a lot. Because well, you're just a nice guy and you didn't want to be perceived any other way. So you would be like, uh, well, uh, yeah. Uh. And, and being the being the leader, I'd never, like being in a leader role where I had a staff that I was essentially paying to do play my songs was sometimes it was like I didn't know how to how to be clear. And I think I've become better at that. I Actually, I know I've become better at that. And like. And isn't it funny you've become better at it? Now that you don't really have that, yeah. Now that I'm, right, being solo or like working yeah. with like Mega Man, where it's like a partnership, being clear, but also knowing like what I want in my life and trying to like going back to this whole thing about like making music for fun. You know, I try to have that joy and spontaneity in or everything you, I do. Right, you should. You need to have that because otherwise, why make music if you feel like it's for? I don't know. But no matter what we're saying right now, the way I see it, I'm glad it went down the way it did. Because Me too. We have so many stupid memories of stupid crap that we did because you were crazy. And then I would feed off of that craziness. <laughs> it's just like we did the most random shit. And right. we're like, here we are in another country. Like, lucky we didn't get arrested or in more trouble. <laughs> like, doing stupid. And like, I say that, but it's not like we were doing bad things. It's just we were being rowdy and adolescent and having fun. Like, yeah. what would you do at... What was I, 25 years old in in the United Kingdom playing a show every night to three or four hundred kids? Yeah. Yeah. Where they're like, they're there to see us. Yeah. That was like a They knew the songs. Yeah. Going nuts. Yeah. Flipping out. Moshings, crowd surfing, like jumping up and down when you told them to. It was great. It was a rowdy time. Asking to take pictures and sign autographs. It was like, that was like the best time. You're right. If we were, if it had just been like us calmly punching the clock, it's like we wanted to manifest this rock star bloodhound gang dvd life well who wouldn't i mean that's yeah. the dream of everybody right yeah. to me anyway it's like i kind of 
thanks to you got to accomplish my dream in some way. Like, yeah. dude, I got to go to another country and play music to a lot of people every night, like on a real tour where there was backing and there was a little tour booklet tour, yeah, and a tour. laminate, at least the first one. And we had a tour driver and you know what I mean? Like it was crazy. And shout out to network, like for everything they did, especially Nell and, yeah. Tom and they really, you know, the, that when the, getting me a work visa with no publication out there about me being a musician, that was another, oh, how they do that. They had to, they paid somebody to write some article that was like talking oh, really? about me being in another band. Yeah. And that was enough. Wow. That's crazy. And that was, t- I remember that was like a struggle. Cause you had, and we had to get the work permit really fast. Yeah. Because it, it was happened all quick, so quickly. That's crazy. Yeah, they really pulled a lot of strings and helping me, like the, the, doing the Craigslist stuff and helping me audition people was what led us to meeting. And so another thing I learned is that I tell myself is don't be, if things don't go exactly as you want, be grateful for the little things that do go miraculously well and don't expect more. And I think that's like a great thing we learn in our 30s to show up, work hard, be kind, and be grateful. Yeah, for what you have already. Yeah. Right. So, um, Rob, oh, wait, wait, before we'd be remiss if we don't go back to Nas, which is what we have. We have to totally go back to Nas really quick. Oh my God. We almost, our listeners are almost like they're fuming. They would have been cheapened. They would have been like, what? You're liars. I wouldn't know what I would have done. I would have edited that part of the podcast. No, but let's talk about that. This is great. So this is one of our last big shows we played together. Yeah. Well, and it was right in the the height of it all, but you know, Mike got us the shows and it was two shows. And it was one at Johnson & Wales University opening for Ludacris. And but, then, but the Ludacris show didn't happen. Well, right. But it was, so it was like Saturday night or Friday night opening for Ludacris uh, or something like that. And then Saturday was opening for Nas. And there was a swine flu outbreak. So the Ludacris show didn't happen. It got canceled. But then we had Nas the next I night. was in Europe with Zebrahead and, and I was like, Mike, any show we can't give, give to K-Flay. So that's what happened. Oh, no, but no, but the, we never opened for Ludacris. No, because but the show never happened at all. It happened a few months later. Oh, a few months later. Yeah, okay. and she got the gig because I said give it to her because yeah, I couldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> so that was tight. So, so okay, so so we just had the Nas show, and so, my my friend. The, sorry to interrupt. I just want to say my friend Pat, who twenty three is about, his parents were there, so I was so like, really right. wanted to be a was great it show. Willimantic, I think, Connecticut. Yeah, you yeah, pro- Eastern Connecticut State University. Right. And which was Willimantic, I think. I think you're right. It? Yeah, you're right. Maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, whatever. Um, so that was a weird show because all the college shows we played were for the college students, but because Nas was such a huge star, they like opened it to the public. Okay, I didn't know so that. So there were random people there who were probably like not college students, older, in their 20s, probably drunk. Because Connecticut's near New York and Nas is Queens. Right, and yeah. they want to see Nas. So it was like 3,500 people in this gymnasium. And we get on the stage and it's like, as to go back to what we were saying earlier, it's like these nerdy white dudes, Mike had the ponytail, oh my you God. had the crazy hair coming out of the bottom of the A's <laughs> the cap. Lot, big pants. The big, big pants and the wearing, oversized t-shirts. Like The average homeboy shirt. And here's I think the best, that. Yeah. And here's the best part of the pants. The baggy ass pants with the Sharpie marker stains because you would just put the freaking Sharpie marker in your front pocket. <laughs> and I, for years I wore my Stanford lanyard for my keys. Yeah. That was so gross. Right. I, so... With the freaking, the, the big ass Converse shoes and whatever. And then you got me and I'm there with my horrible hair that I had at the time. And then you got we John. Were, we didn't really fit on that bill. Let's put it that we, way. We, so, <laughs> we didn't really fit as a band. We looked like a bar band. Yeah, like a ragtag group of like bums. Then for years, you guys would just wear the MC Lars shirts, but that was, you weren't feeling that. That was a struggle too. I was yeah. like, oh, I don't want to wear your, like the band shirt that I'm playing in, but hey, whatever. I fought you on it as much as I could, but I always gave in because what was I going to do? But so anyway, the show, the Nas show, they were like booing us off the stage 
get off the stage. Yeah, like, they we were. We want to see Nas. And, and every <laughs> they were going hard. They hated us. Oh, my God. And it was like. Well, we were killing it, but I just remember being like having 3,500 people with this vitriol of hatred of like, what are you doing to our culture? Yeah. Was was that was stressful? I wanted the set to be over. Me too, and because ha- they started in like the second song, You're throwing stuff at and us, you, and then you were like every. And this is why I always remember it as like a really funny time because every time the song would end, you'd be like, "Thank you so much, guys. We love you guys. You guys are the best." Like, <laughs> no, and then I kept saying, "We have merch. We'll be in the bag selling merch. Who wants an MC Lars T-shirt?" And they were throwing like bottles and it was scary it was kind of really screwed up and i had never had that experience especially with us it was always like people just either didn't know how to react but they were like all right this is kind of cool but then like or they just but they would still like go through the motions of clapping and whatever and these people were like wanted us off so bad <laughs> but, Which, but and then and then and then oh you go ahead sorry no no go then we're like well <laughs> well the, the time when they at the moment where they all absolutely lost it when I was like, all right, we have a special guest and front of lock comes oh my up God, yeah. dressed like a science teacher to do the original gamer <laughs> with his with headlamp head and his moves. And like, it's like, it's like they'd evolved into the rabid. They were, I just never heard that much angry. They were like really pissed off. Like it was bad enough. They were dealing with us. And, then and we here brought comes front of lock. Yeah. Right. It was like, Oh my God. And it was oh, probably so much hatred. It was the most awkward show I've ever played. Yeah. But who else can say they opened for Nas? <laughs> So screw well, you. I remember I wanted to thank him for the opportunity and nope, he was rolling so deep. Yeah. And here's the other thing. This was the thing that really bothered me. And I always like opening for Snoop or like other big rappers, a big rapper, if his set, his or her set time is 10, they are not going on at 10. Never. Never. I remember after we played, it was like two hours of them waiting. Well, you remember we very early on, we did that show at uh, Montclair State University and, and it was like a big festival. Oh, with Lupe Fiasco? Jo- Joel Santana. Oh, Joel Santana, yeah. And that was at the height of like the whistle song. And he, I remember, dude, he came out and he played like a 10 minute set. Three hours after. Yeah, and it was like every song was like, he would play the first verse and the chorus and then it was over. And he would go to another song. A lazy performance. Horrible. And probably getting paid like 50 Gs. Rappers, they did not care. What made me so mad was like, you hating us. What, you just want to stand in the crowd and I don't know. That was... Like opening for Snoop was not as bad, but it was still bad. Well, like, and in hindsight, we were so stoked about that weekend. Like, remember, John took us to like the country club to have dinner and to celebrate. We all got dressed up. It was like know. Thursday night because or something. Because it was like going to be, it was, it was ludicrous. Ludicrous and, and Nas in the same weekend. It was like a monumental thing. We were so stoked. We like, made oh my it. god, yeah, holy shit, we're playing for like two of the biggest rappers ever. Like opening at these colleges because shows are going to be packed. Right. And yeah, the Nas show was like thirty five. 4,000 people. But no one, no one cared. No they one even talked. They probably don't even recognize you from yeah. stage to, to floor, and especially when they just want to see Nas. It is what it is. But. That's how I always felt. Like it was a poignant metaphor for how I always felt like trying to get mainstream rap people to like me because they never will and they never would. No, but I think that that was probably not the right idea. You should have been targeting punk rock kids and rock kids. That's 100% true. I think that was. So there is number two of advice I would give you. Don't target mainstream rap fans. Yeah, but having said that, I remember like doing those college shows. Mike would always make it sure we were paid enough so I could pay everyone and like pay for studio time for the robot album. Well, that's why those shows were the best, though. Those shows were when we were treated the best. It's like you were getting catering. Right. You had a, uh, your own dressing room. Right. You had, uh, you know, everything you needed. And it was cool. I mean, yeah, it, is it was what it cool. Is. It was cool. If what you feel like what you're doing is dope, you don't need to 
placate people who you feel like are the tastemakers who are going to like tell you your rap is legitimate. Like, right. just do it. And that's always been like the power of underground music is people just do it because, and fat records too, do it because you love it and whatever. Like that, and that's the inspiring thing I love about punk and, and hip hop. Well, you found a niche that not everybody out there in the DIY would do. So like, you know, it I always- be stupid to try it. Well, if, if I ever talk to somebody and they ask me, you know, oh, what you, what did you do? Who did you go there with? I'd be like, it's this guy, MC Lars. And I'll always say, if Weird Al and the Beastie Boys had a baby, that's the sound. Hey, that's nice. So I think that's a pretty good comparison but yeah. or description. But then again, it's like one of those things. It's like, that's a niche that like, who's who out there is like in a garage writing songs to, that sound similar to Weird Al or something? Not that say it sounds similar, but in that vein. Who's doing that kind of almost, not parody, but obviously you have some, but you know what I mean? Like that whole vibe, who's doing something like that on their own. Yeah. That, that isn't already established in some way or, you know what I mean? And like, and then melding all the different sounds together. So there was a niche there. So it's like, that was really the target audience, but, but a hip hop audience would have been more mainstream. So I get it. It was suburban kids who wanted something smart. I mean, the biggest, the guest who I've had on the show, the biggest influence stylistically would have been Adam and his package. You remember him? Yes, of course. Yeah, so. But, but here's the other part of the problem too. That in order to do touring the way you did uh-huh. in the scene you were doing it in, that's where you had the best opportunity to get on shows, to play shows, to do tour. Because like, I feel like hip hop shows don't really happen that often. And it's not, it's not the same. It's not like a show where they sell merch. I feel like these guys just show up to a club. They, they play a, a few songs. Sure, sure. And that's the end of it. And it's like. That's not like a show that I'm used to. I'm used to a show with four bands and it's General, a bill. Like, and super mainstream, like Drake-esque. Well, maybe he's well, different because he's like stadium. No, I'm talking about more on a like a DIY level, like, you know, something where it's like the local scenes and that's where you were really touring. Yeah. Like you were playing these more punk rock rock shows, like right, where right. you would just come in and kind of meld these two worlds where you kind of fit, but you kind of didn't. So you stuck out. But yeah, if you were going to try to stay on the hip hop circuit, it's a completely different animal. Well, and that's why Nerdcore is kind of like the strange baby that came out of this, which felt like this novelty thing that wasn't going to last, that it was like a bad version of rap that now is a thing that you're right. Like that was always an asset being the one different thing on a bill of a bunch of local. Right. And I'm lucky to have like great friends like you who gave it this musical depth that made it awesome. Where can people support your current project? I don't even care, to be honest. Like we're, we, we're recently talking about, we have some new merch, so we're going to like update our site and figure it out. But yeah. I don't believe anybody even goes to it anymore. It's all about your Facebook page. So we have a Facebook page. It's Red Hymns. Well, now you're going to have people go to it. Yeah, well, because I hope of the so. show. Yeah, I hope so. But it's I'll be looking at the likes to see if they go up. But it's um, Red Hymns, H Y M N S, like gospel hymns, but they're obviously not gospel hymns. But uh, we have our Spotify, we have Apple Music, all this major streaming stuff. That's pretty much right. YouTube. We have a bunch of videos on there. We have a channel. Um, do you got, like, I remember a few years ago, you guys were tour, you did an East Coast tour, but was that with the bounce between? Yeah, balance between we we did an audio tree live session in Chicago. We That's were tight. really lucky. Um, That's tight. We when you know when we when we release stuff, we don't work with them all the time, but we'll do. We'll hire a publicist. That's uh, Earshot Media. They're great. So we asked. We're like, hey, can you have any connections at Audio Tree? And they got us. They they so they offered us two dates, and we made it. We made it like a week out of it. Did you end up playing at Pittsburgh? No, no. You but called remember, that guy Manny, that promoter. That guy was so no, so mean to me. He wasn't feeling the fact that you called him? I don't think so. He was he, just pissed off. It's he, like... He was bothered? Aggro, yeah. He has bands calling him a lot. Kind of like, was like, oh, I didn't book his last show. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, all like mad at me. And I'm like, I don't know, man. This is just what I was told. Sorry to bother you. And so he was So you didn't play Pittsburgh? No, we didn't. But he, we, did, uh, we did a show in Akron. Thanks, Jeff Clem. We did 
Then we went from Akron to Chicago and we hung out for a day. We had a day off. The next day was the audio tree session. And then the next day we played a show in Chicago with our boys, Hidden Hospitals. They hooked us up with the show. They're great guys. That's cool. Awesome band. Check them out. Would you want to do more touring if it came up or is it kind of like yeah, no, we, so much? Well, we always talk about it. So, uh, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have a few people we could give our songs to that, you know, who knows what could come of it. But I, I don't, I don't expect it anymore or think that it'll ever happen because it's so unlikely. But we always talk about it. if it was something that was worth it, um, we would do it. I could always find another job. It has to make sense for everyone, right? Yeah. And it has to be, it's got to be something worthwhile, which is near impossible because I have to at least pay some bills. Yeah. So I'd have to, I'd have to be able to guarantee that there's going to be some kind of money in it, but and that's impossible. And so. what's hard is, and I mean, this was easier for me, but when you're starting out, when I would open for people, I'd get like 50, hundred bucks a show. You can't feed a five dudes on that. Not at all. And and you don't know if you're going to sell merch and like, it's, it's, yeah, tw- it's, I don't know how a band does it now without a label. It's a labor of love, my friend. It's a labor of love. And it's like, you have to do it all on your own. So like, if we're going to do anything, it would be like a three or four day weekend. We'd rent a van and we'd just go out to like Pennsylvania. We do that a lot. We'll do, you know, we've, we've, um, established ourselves in Scranton. That's um, cool. Thanks to these guys behind the gray. They really, um, they're really awesome. They, they hooked us up. They, they always have us out there. They always ask us to come up and open shows. Yeah. So it's like. It's really cool. Um, but we'll do like Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut. We'll try that kind of stuff in the local area. Um, What's your favorite place to play in Jersey? There are like really no places anymore. I mean, we have a little spot really? called... Yeah, it's called Clash Bar. That's like... But it's a little DIY joint. It's like, you know... It's the only spot that's even really any good there. They all shut down. Any place that's good. I mean, Debonair Music Hall is pretty cool. You played there recently. Yeah. Um, but it's huge. That's the problem. Play there Dragons. Yeah, it was definitely... It was yeah, empty looking, but well, it was it was weird because there was people there, but yeah, it's so big. You need like a thousand people in there to right. make it. We actually that place used to be called Mexicali Live. Oh, that was Mexicali Live. It's the same place, and we opened uh, Bounce Between opened for CKY there. That, that was crazy. That's sold cool. out show. Yeah, we had a cool couple good up. We played with Matchbook Romance there. Yeah, um, we've gotten some good shows. That's our thing. Like we pick and choose. We wait, and then we have some people that we can hit up, and you know we're lucky enough to when when touring packages come through or bands come through that don't have a touring package right that's when we have the opportunity to be the local support to me punk rock is about the friendships you make the opportunities and the love of what you do creating something that's not run by someone who's telling you you should be creating it well right that's the whole art business commerce thing that's confusing which makes it like when you're touring with your you know we hung out so much and these days we don't hang out as much as we did but like i instantly feel like we are back where we started when I see you because we have this like love for music that transcends all this business stuff, which can be, well, it became a friendship. It so can destroy friendships if it right. goes wrong. Of you course. Know? But yeah. you know, we didn't, we, we, it was different because it was like, it was always your project that we were just kind of like lucky enough to be on the ride. Yeah. So there wasn't anything, it wasn't like we were both contracted and pl- like together. And it was like, we were going through the stress of this together that could tear us apart. Right. It was. Yeah. Then that was the benefit of having like a great management company that was investing the money into it to to try to recoup because it wasn't like my savings that I was putting on the line. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Avril Lavigne. Avril Lavigne. Yeah. (laughs) So it's all good. Rob, let's end with Red Hymns. We're going to do it. Bye. Love you.
Thank you, Rob. That was awesome. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in, for listening, for supporting. I wanted to shout out the people who made this episode possible, the Patreon supporters. Shout out to the new ones, Kathy, Luke, and Karina, and to the old ones, Omri, Marissa, and Johnny. If you sign up, you get two exclusive songs a month. You get a shout out on the podcast. You get merch. You get all sorts of cool stuff. So patreon.com slash mclars. Next week, we got one of my best friends in the world, Chris Gates. Chris Gates is an accomplished writer who's written for Mad Magazine and done reviews for some huge magazines. He's done a comic book. He's done scripts. He's amazing, and I love him. So we talked about what life is like as an independent writer in Los Angeles, and we reminisce about middle school and some of our old hijinks. So check it out, Chris Gates, next week. Until then, thanks for listening. It's your friend MC Lars. Happy summer, and I'll see you all soon. Peace!